but please I welcome Dr. Blumenthal uh, for a lecture on gender-affirming care. Thank you. Well, thanks everyone and welcome to America's Finest City. Um, I hope I don't lose any of my time, so I'll make sure to move forward. Well, I know I'm the only person standing between you and your lunch, so I do respect that. Here are my disclosures. So after attending this presentation, uh, learners should be able to list key terminology for gender identity and gender affirmation, describe best practices for gender-affirming hormone therapy management, discuss the epidemiology of HIV in transgender populations, and then identify strategies to improve HIV care and prevention in transgender communities. So by way of hands, who has seen this slide before, the gender unicorn? Okay, seems like a lot of people. Um, I love using this slide. I show this to my, I've shown this to my eight-year-old niece and my 93-year-old uh, grandmother. I think you can learn a lot from this. It basically um, is trying to explain uh, that there are a lot of different processes and where they come from. But when we talk about gender identity, that is your um, subjective feeling of being female or male. And what you'll see here are these arrows. And the idea is you'd actually, you could plot along each arrow um, where your gender identity was or where a patient's gender identity was. Gender expression is meant to be sort of how you, how you go out in the world, what you show people. Um, and then sex assigned at birth is uh, what we use instead of saying something like biological sex. Um, and then the, the last two are sexual, sexual attraction and romantic attraction. This is really just to make the point that there is a spectrum. Not everyone falls in one place and it's important to respect the fact that people may have different um, identities, expressions, attractions. And just some key identity terms. So um, a cisgender female, I am a cisgender female. I am a person who was assigned female at birth and my gender identity is also female. Um, a transgender individual is someone whose gender identity, identity and assigned sex at birth don't correspond. Um, I just wanna make a comment about that. Usually we'll say for a transgender woman, that is someone who identifies as a woman, transgender woman, you'll see it in the EMR a lot as transgender, sorry, as a male to female individual. That is a very medical term. We try to move away from that. Um, it's something that you should try not to use as much uh, anymore uh, unless a patient uses it. And then the one that you'll probably see a lot more is non-binary. That's a person who doesn't identify with the binary expectations of being strictly a man or a woman. So when we think about gender affirmation, I tend to think of it in four different domains, but the overall concept is the process of recognizing, accepting, and expressing one's gender identity, or as providers helping a person to do all those things. Um, and we certainly come out in the medical place, uh, the, the medical arena. Um, that's when we talk about hormones and surgery and sometimes non, some non-surgical things like vocal feminization or hair removal, that's often what you as a provider um, are doing. But everything is gonna come up when you see a patient uh, who's transgender. The social emotional affirmation, those are things including the name, someone's pronouns, their dress, coming out to other people. Then there's the psychological of the process of gender validation and then patients still dealing with internalized stigma and transphobia that they may have experienced for years. 
And then legal, those are the identity documents and uh, they, are, they can be very challenging for a lot of patients to have to deal with, um, especially when your electronic medical record may not reflect um, the appropriate, or they may have the person's legal um, documents, but they're not changed. And so the person's chosen or lived name may look different. And uh, just so you know, we've medicalized all of this by using the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Um, I put the ICD-10 code for people to have it. Um, and, and the idea behind gender dysphoria, what it means is it's distress related to incongruence between gender identity and sex assigned at birth. Not everyone has gender dysphoria. It's very different for different patients. I tell patients, I'm putting it in your medical record because this is what insurances want to see so we can get some things covered. So there's, um, there's several treatment guidance uh, that you can use. The one that just came out is the one in the middle, and that's the WPATH standards of care for the health of, health of transgender and gender diverse people. Um, hot off the presses came out a few months ago. There's some big shifts in it. Um, the endocrine society guidelines are the first ones listed there. And then one that's very accessible and easy to look at, especially if you're with a patient and just kind of want to toggle to something and talk about something with them or look something up are the guidelines for the primary and gender affirming care of transgender and gender non-binary people out of UCSF. And they're in their center for a uh, center of excellence for transgender health. Oh, so this is the first question. Okay. Uh, providers caring for transgender women living with HIV on antiretroviral ther therapy should A, discontinue gender-affirming hormonal therapy, reduce the dose of their estrogen therapy by 50%, stop ART if they want to continue hormones, or monitor hormones if an interaction with ART is likely. Okay. Smart group, it was, a, it was a gimme. So this is um, a nice uh, table for you of all the gender affirming hormone therapy, both for traditionally masculinizing therapy, therapy um, which is the testosterone treatment and then the estrogen treatment. Um, and then the adjunctive therapies are part of the feminizing therapy. Um, this just gives you sort of a different, you know, there are a lot of different ways to do this. Everyone asks, which is the best way? Um, there are some uh, important things to consider, um, but mostly it's what works best for the patient. What do they think they're going to take the best? And then, of course, there's insurance coverage. So um, usually the oral therapy for estrogen is the one that's easiest to get covered. Um, and then injectable testosterone, are, those are usually the easiest. And then when you want to make any additional changes, it really depends on a person's insurance. Um, and I'll talk about some other reasons why you might use different formulations in a bit. So when you monitor patients on hormone therapies, often you know people wanna know how often are you supposed to be doing this? And when someone starts, you really wanna see them every three months uh, for the first year. Fortunately, that usually works with what you're doing if you're seeing them for either HIV um, care or prevention. But then it can get spaced out a little bit uh, further along once they've reached that 12-month mark. We tell patients, you know, the, the first six months are really the, the big key changes that they're going to see. So uh, there are going to be continuous changes. Um, 
throughout and even beyond that period. And then you can just see what's recommended in terms of the lab monitoring. It's pretty minimal. And again, if you are treating someone living with HIV, you're doing most of this stuff anyway. So really the addition is checking estradiol and testosterone. Um, the prolactin at the bottom is, is something that's sort of gone out of my practice, at least there isn't much data suggests that just checking it um, without having any kind of symptoms is beneficial. So just a little bit about feminizing surgery. Um, listed there is the prevalence with which uh, these surgeries occur. It's a huge range, and we know that more and more people are getting surgeries now that insurance is covering for many people. So there's a whole spectrum of things people can get. Um, usually the most common sought, off, sought after for feminizing is breast augmentation, orchiectomy, chondrolaryngoplasty, um, or tracheal shave. And then the others are much, much bigger surgeries, um, definitely require someone with expertise to do it. Um, a lot of patients will go outside of the, the local area to, to seek these out. And it's important for you if you are seeing someone, you know, that's interested in this to know, do you have these things locally? Or is it something that you're going to be, you know, is the referral going to be going outside of uh, your local area? Um, and just a lot of people get fillers. It's something to uh, pay attention to. There are a lot of um, there are a lot of risks associated with fillers, and even when you talk to patients about it, they still may do it. And just to make sure uh, you're keeping an eye on things. Masculinizing surgery, the the big one that many patients get is chest surgery um, and breast reduction or chest reconstruction are those common ones. But there are a lot of other things they can do. Um, and again, a, a very common one is the hysterectomy, uh, bilateral oophorectomy, which a lot of patients choose to do at some point, um, or just the removal the removal of one ovary. Um, and then uh, creation of a penis is a is a pretty complicated process. You need um, usually not one, but two surgeons that can do this. Um, and it is definitely something that needs to be thought about by a patient. Um, but it does exist. And there are more and more uh, surgeons doing this. Um, so it, it may be something that they would like to discuss with you. So let's get into uh, some things about HIV individuals. Um, so the prevalence in the USA is about 0.4% of HIV. Contrast that to transgender women of about 14% um, of people living with HIV. That's obviously a dramatic uh, difference. And then transgender women, we have a few, or transgender men, sorry, we have some estimates, um, about 3%. We know that it is likely lower than transgender women, um, but we still don't have great estimates of it. Um, and this is uh, to highlight, broken down very binarily, um, if that's a word. Uh, so on the left, you can see transgender men, um, and you can see that actually for both of them, for the transgender men and transgender women, you can see that the ring has a lot of red. That is uh, Black and African-American identified individuals, um, which are absolutely hardest hit by HIV, in in every um, in nearly every statistical category we have, but certainly with uh, transgender individuals as well. 
So with HIV treatment, unfortunately, transgender women living with HIV have poor outcomes across the care cascade. Um, we know that they have lower retention in care, uh, lower ART use, lower ART adherence, and lower rates of viral suppression. So all of these things are affected across the continuum, but there definitely are some things we can do, and we'll talk about that. So it, this is uh, data from uh, the Ryan White program, and this is looking at viral suppression among transgender adults and adolescents. Um, so there's a total of 560,000 uh, in this data set, and there were just just about uh, 10,000 transgender individuals, you can see that the rate of suppression, which is 89.5% across, um, uh, across the program for, for all comers, it's lower by almost every category for transgender individuals, transgender um, people who identify as African-American, younger individuals, people with unstable housing. And then of course, what's, what's nice here and what they showed here is you know, putting uh, a couple of things on top of each other, looking at you know, some syndemics. Uh, so unstable housing and being African-American really lower um, the, uh, the, the rates of viral suppression. So many factors associated with viral nine suppression. I just wanted to highlight a few of them. The first one, prior, prioritizing transition-related medical care over HIV care. So this is why we, as HIV providers, really need to be able to do this for our patients. We know that they, they will, if they can do both of this with, with them, uh, they will, that, that makes them coming back more frequently and um, they, and, and having sort of that trust with you is really important. There's a concern about drug interactions between hormones and HIV. Um, I think another really important one is the negative experiences with providers in the health system. Um, your clinic may be great. You may do, be doing amazing things, but as soon as you send your patient to another clinic where maybe they're not as, as familiar, that incident can be you know, really traumatic and triggering for patients. Um, and then, of course, I, you know, you can't forget the coming into the medical system. So seeing the security guard, the front desk person, all of these things can be challenging for patients. Um, and just fear of discrimination. You have the HIV stigma on top of the trans stigma. And then the three really big issues, mental health, substance use, unstable housing, all have been uh, shown to be associated with viral non-suppression. This is the good news. There really aren't that many drug-drug interactions to be concerned about. Um, and this is actually from the newest DHHS guidelines. Um, so the ARTs with the least potential to impact gender-affirming care are all the NRTIs, unboosted INSTEs, and the NNRTIs, especially Duravarine. That's mostly what a lot of people are using these days, which is great news. There is perhaps, you know, there, we know that there could be increases in different levels for some of the protease inhibitors and some of the other NNRTIs, but in general, you're going to monitor the dose of uh, people's gender affirming hormone therapy um, based on what they are hoping to achieve, any adverse effects they're having, and hormone concentrations, um, and make adjustments if need be. So fortunately, 98% of you knew this answer, so I'll just keep going. 
So there are a couple of uh, medical comorbidities that um, patients living with HIV experience and the, um, the consideration of the gender affirming hormone therapy can potentially be additive or maybe even the higher concern. So weight gain is a big one, and I know we've discussed it a lot already. We're aware of the HIV medications that can cause weight gain. We know that estrogen can cause weight gain. Um, it causes weight redistribution, changes in muscle mass, um, and um, just overall, that's something that patients need to be aware of. Um, and then in terms of testosterone, we know that body mass will typically increase with testosterone therapy, uncertain really about weight gain in that, in that setting. And of course, we can't forget that transgender uh, women living with HIV probably have a lot of life stressors, and there's always you know, something else that could be going on that needs to be taken into consideration. So what can you do in situations like this? Um, I had alluded to this before that switching ART is not uh, currently recommended by the guidelines, but patient in front of you, it's a patient-centered you know, discussion that you wanna have if the weight gain is really significant. Um, the gender-affirming hormone therapy, sometimes patients come to you, they're already on a really large dose um, or they, they come on a large dose, maybe it wasn't being monitored by anyone. Um, you can, you know, if you're able to get hormone levels and say, look, you're in a really good range and you've done, you know, a lot of the feminizing you're going to be doing, they may be amenable to, you know, dropping back on the dose. But again, very, uh, very patient-centered conversation. And obviously there's always lifestyle and, and other considerations that you can make with additional medications. So cardiovascular risk, another one, we know the HIV in itself, um, there's, there can be an impact on viremia and inflammation, and there's specific ARVs that we have uh, with clinical trials perhaps shown some association with um, increased cardiovascular risk. With gender-affirming hormone therapy, sorry, GAC is gender-affirming care, um, we know that there's an increased risk of thromboembolic disease in transgender individuals who are taking estrogens, and there also may be increased risk for hypertension, dyslipidemias, and stroke. We just don't have enough data on all of this. Um, and then, of course, we always have to think about other cardiovascular risk factors and life stressors. So what can you do in a situation like this to make things safer for patients? Again, avoid ARVs that may contribute to that. But in terms of gender-affirming hormone therapy, um, it's strongly recommended that above the age of 40, you would use injectables or patches instead of pills to potentially lower that risk of, of clot. Um, and then of course, you know, anyone who's smoking, that is the most important thing that you can discuss with them. Um, although withholding hormone therapy from people who smoke is not a good approach, um, and that's not shown to be effective. So just talking about what are things that can be done for patients um, so that they maybe want to cut back or ultimately quit entirely. So how do you facilitate HIV care engagement? Um, I've talked about a lot of these things already in, in the few slides before us. But having providers that af affirm people's gender and really things as simple as using their chosen name and their pronouns, um, these people have been shown to be more likely to be virally suppressed. Um, 
and that making access to gender affirming hair, uh, gender affirming hormone therapy contingent on your art therapy is does not help anybody. And that's been shown to be associated with lower likelihood of viral suppression. Hopefully patients will start to link the two and know that they're both important, but saying to someone, I'm not gonna give you your hormones because you're not taking your HIV therapy is not gonna be beneficial for them. Um, so integrating HIV care with gender, gender care, we know that that's associated with higher rates of viral suppression. Um, it decreases the number of provider visits that a patient may have to do if they're seeing you and an endocrinologist or a different primary care doctor. Um, and then um, a lot of patients have concern with the overlap of HIV care and gender affirming care. So it's something that you can address together. Having visible transgender staff in, in the clinic facilitates engagement and care. I mean, we can't say the, this enough. You need to have people who look like the patients that you're serving there, especially in this arena. Um, and then, you know, we want to be trauma informed with all our patients, but we know that um, uh, in particular for this population, there um, we need to think about different kinds of violence, stigma, and discrimination that have occurred against transgender. Uh, patients living with HIV. Okay, we're actually going to shift into PrEP. Um, so the first question, or the, the, the PrEP question, is what's true regarding the use of PrEP in transgender people? The CDC recommends on-demand PrEP, 2-1-1 for use in transgender people. M-tricitabine, tenofovir, alafenamide is the, per, the preferred PrEP option for transgender women due to higher rates of chronic kidney disease. Oral PrEP does not affect estradiol or testosterone levels in transgender individuals using hormones. Transgender men should avoid oral PrEP due to testosterone use. Just in the interest of time today. Okay. A little bit more spread, but it looks like people are, um, are uh, aware of what this looks like also. We'll, we'll talk about the data for that. So HIV prevention, sort of big take-home points for this. Um, PrEP uptake we know has been suboptimal in transgender populations, multitude of reasons for that. Um, but it's both low adherence and persistence, meaning returning to clinic, returning uh, to keep taking the medication. CAB-LA is a great option, just have to be cautious with um, silicone and fillers, cannot be used or injected into those areas. And there are now more options, which is really exciting. Transgender women do have more options. Um, daily FTC TDF, daily FTC uh, TAF, and then CAB-LA. The, the little asterisk says that daily FTC TAF hasn't been studied in individuals engaging in vag vaginal sex, sex acts only. So, um, so in terms of transgender men, um, if they were having, you know, only anal sex, could you consider using it? Absolutely. Um, they're also, you're also probably using uh, TAF FTC for some of your cisgender women because your insurance companies are making you do it. That's happened for us too. We know that they probably both work. We just don't have data. Um, and then transgender men, what we have, um, again, with, with that information, FTC, TDF, and CAB-LA. So I just wanted everyone to, I, I wanted to think about the new and the old 
um, CDC 2021 PrEP guidelines. So on the left are the 2017 guidelines, which were very, um, you know, very cohort, very population focused, MSM, heterosexual women and men, uh, persons who inject drugs. They're actually transgender women weren't specifically even named in the initial guidelines. And now on the right, they've made them much more general with the idea that anyone who's having sex um, really should be thought of for PrEP, but then specifically sexually active adults or adolescents who had anal or vaginal sex in the last six months and any of the following. So it sort of moves away from some of those categories that we were, um, that we had, uh, that they had talked about in 2017. PrEP uptake, um, while it is improving, and that's what's important from that last yellow, uh, the yellow tag there. Uh, this is in San Francisco though, everything's an anomaly in San Francisco. Um, but you can see how much improvement they made. Uh, study by Aaron Wilson in 2015, just 1% were willing to take PrEP. And then um, about seven years later, or the study came out seven years later, um, almost 50% had taken PrEP in the last 12 months. That's San Francisco though. I think we know that there are, that's not happening in every city, um, but just to show you that um, there can be changes uh, and, and um, awareness is definitely better. It's still the uptake and then the persistence that's difficult. So this is just a quick slide on persistence. Um, I, what I want you to look at is the, um, the figure or the, sorry, the, um, the table on the right about median days of PrEP use prior to discontinuation. And again, this is in San Francisco, but um, I've highlighted that transgender women who have sex with men had the shortest median days of PrEP use prior to discontinuation. Um, and so this is a group that's still having trouble um, staying on the medications, taking it for whatever reason, lots of reasons for that. Um, I know that Dr. Landovitz will probably talk about this more tomorrow, but just to highlight in the HPTN 083, um, there was a subset of transgender women that were included, 330, um, again, excluded if they had silicone implants. There was lo overall low HIV risk perception. A lot of people were taking different forms of gender affirming hormone therapy. Um, and, and just the, you know, the figure shows that there were more seroconversions in the daily FTDF, but not statistically significant. Um, but basically, uh, you know, there, were there was a lower incidence with long-acting injectable. Um, and they did a, a subset of, of findings in, in patients um, who were taking hormone therapies, and they found that the gender-affirming hormone therapy didn't affect the cabotegravir concentrations. So that just builds to, with our other uh, data that we have, we have a lot of data that there are no bidirectional effects between TDF and FTC with gender-affirming hormone therapy. And now we have similar, obviously it's a small amount of data, uh, but no interactions observed between CAB-LA and gender-affirming hormone therapy. So that's very reassuring for patients. It's actually more data than that we have for patients living with HIV. So, um, you know, really important for a lot of people who, where that might be their concern. So this is your question and people did very well with it. Oral prep doesn't affect estradiol or total or free testosterone levels. Um, I did just wanna make a comment about A, the on-demand prep. Um, it's not recommended for transgender individuals. 
that's not to say that someone might not um, someone might be interested in it and wants to have a conversation with you about it. And that would again be very patient centered. What do we know? What do we think it means? You know, I think by virtue of the fact that we know that the hormone therapy doesn't have an effect on it, you could make the argument perhaps, but it's a data-free zone. And I think it really is very dependent on you and your patient. So what can you do to make patients, you know, feel like they're welcome in your clinic? Um, take a look at your clinic. What does it look like? What do the intake forms look like? Um, what does your EMR do? Do you have a, a sexual orientation, gender identity tab that you can do um, with a patient? Use the patient's chosen names and pronouns. I want to make a comment. It's not preferred name or pronouns. This is not a preference for patients. It's their chosen name. It is their lived pronouns. So we've tried to toss the preferred name away. Um, have knowledgeable providers, wraparound services available, um, and you should have transgender images you know, all over the clinic if you can. So just in summary, transgender individuals experience many health disparities, including HIV and increased risk of HIV. Uh, hormone therapy and other affirming care are very important for HIV care engagement. Medical comorbidities in transgender, uh, transgender women living with HIV may be amplified by gender affirming hormone therapy. Um, different PrEP administration options are available for transgender individuals. And very importantly, no concern for interactions with gender-affirming hormone therapy, clinical competency, gender-affirming hormone therapy provision, and, and a welcoming environment to engagement and care. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Uh, we have a lot of questions, but we're just going to take a few minutes so that people can get onto their lunch and we don't get too far behind. Uh, uh, several questions about the use of progesterone. Um, the WPATH guidelines basically came out and said, we have no recommendation on it. A lot of patients will want to use it. Um, I, again, it's a, a risk-benefit conversation with people. I think one of the biggest concerns was, does it increase the risk for HIV um, and maybe some theoretical risks about cardiovascular disease? I use it a lot with patients. Um, so again, it's just important to have that conversation. A second question is about estrogen therapy in transgender women over age 65. Yeah, I do it. Um, again, conversation with a patient, knowing that all of the risks of things that we discussed may go up. And again, not a lot of data in these individuals. Um, something that I just discussed with a resident who wants to look at this more. What do you do with someone who's either starting later? I don't know who that is. Dinging sound. Um, I don't know. For, for There's questions both with patients who've been on hormone therapy or who want to start it later in life. I think the idea is to go slow and make sure to be frequently in communication with patients. And can you talk about uh, the future fertility of uh, patients who start hormone therapy? Yeah, so the best practice is to try to do any of the um, egg or uh, sperm banking ahead of time. That's really difficult for a lot of people. It's not covered by any insurance, it's expensive. And when you are 18 years old, what do you know that you want with your life? How do you know you're gonna to wanna to have children? Um, we know that you can come off of hormone therapy um, and potentially have the ability to uh, produce eggs uh, or sperm that is still viable. So it, it's very patient dependent. I just tell patients if, 
the don't let that be the reason not to start your hormones unless it is 100% one of the most important things that you you know that you need to do. It usually can happen later in life. It's just a little it's more challenging that way and still expensive. Um, is there any data about the patients uh, HIV primary care provider prescribing hormones themselves um, in terms of viral suppression? Like if you're willing to pr prescribe uh, gender affirming therapy? Yeah, there actually is data. I don't know if it ended up getting public. It was it was from a, an abstract. It was Jay Sevilla's data from San Francisco that showed that the practice of prescribing both together did have greater success with viral suppression. So. Um, I, it just, I don't think it ever came out as a manuscript, but it's data that I use all the time, the importance of that. And uh, for a patient that has a buttock implant, can you use long-acting agents like the injectables for HIV? What happens? No, you, you can't do it with cabotegravir. Um, so those are patients where you wouldn't be able to, it's just, they wouldn't be able to do it. It would be unknown if it would actually work. Um, could you find an area on them that maybe didn't have the filler? Probably not. That would be off the table for them. Okay. I think we're going to have to end there. There are a lot of really other great questions. And once a, you'll be around for the rest of the afternoon. I'll be around and I have a breakout session. I'd love for people to come and chat. Great. Enjoy Thank lunch. You.